Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. SoupX, the Startup Expo, North America's premier startup conference, is March 6th and 7th, 2017, in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Affordably priced, SoupX is a two-day international conference featuring workshops, panels, speeches, a $50,000 startup competition, and over 100 exhibitors. For more information, go to sup-x.org. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Mark Volchek. He's an entrepreneur, investor, and advisor. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You're, you're doing some really interesting things, and you've been involved in a bunch of really interesting things. But maybe before we kind of get into that, let's start off with getting to know you a little bit better and, and cover where you grew up. Sure. So um, my early childhood, I spent in uh, New York and Long Island area. Okay. And then I lived, yeah, so that till about 10 years old. And then I lived in Europe um, from 10 to 18, so in Austria specifically. Nice. Um, before coming, coming back to uh, the States to go to college uh, in Connecticut. Sure. So what was it like living in Europe, being kind of an American living, living over there? Um, you know, it was, it was certainly a big change, but it was very interesting sort of in hindsight. I think as a, as a kid, you really just don't think that much about it. Um, my mother is originally from Austria, so she basically for her was you know going home, and sure. um, so it was an opportunity for me to learn a second language and and sort of get exposed to a completely different you know culture and way of doing business. And I think today, in hindsight, it's sort of a really interesting sort of experience. I can sort of look back on and understand many things um, from a different perspective, um, having spent you know those years in Europe. Sure. No, that that makes that makes sense. So you went to Yale and took economics, correct? Yep, that's right. So so what got you interested in kind of economics, and why did you decide to pursue that in university? Um, so I was pretty set on going into sort of business, whatever that meant, you know, sure. at the time. And so economics was sort of the closest in sort of the liberal arts, you know, arena to sort of business because Yale at the time had a you know, very small business school. There was no undergraduate business program. So economics was sort of a way to learn how, how sort of the business world works, uh, how the economy works, um, and sort of, you know, gave me a lot of the fundamental things needed to really be able to, you know, understand business later. Because ultimately, you know, having a strong math background, having some of the economics background, you know, it's helpful when you think about, you know, what makes the business world, you know, operate and function and what makes it successful. Sure. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. So you graduated um, from Yale. Um, you, you worked on a bachelor's degree and then you, you got your master's, correct? Yep. Yeah, I actually did that concurrently. So, um, oh, okay. So, yeah, so I did sort of a joint program in, in four years where I was able to get my bachelor's and my master's um, by taking more advanced classes, kind of um, earlier in my undergraduate career. So I was fortunate that I was able to sort of um, get all that done in, in four years. Sure. that You must have been busy. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and there was a, lots of ways to sort of cross-utilize the credits uh, between graduate and undergraduate pro program. So um, that was a pretty unique aspect of the program that you all had at the time. Sure. No, that's great. So you 
you graduate, um, you, you were actually an entrepreneur before you kind of became a VC, correct? Yep, that's right. So walk me through kind of your entrepreneurial career. Yeah, so, um, you know, during college, I was already sort of active um, as an entrepreneur, and I sort of had a home improvement um, business associated with College Pro. I don't know if you know, they sort yeah. of do uh, college franchises, and so I was involved in that um, for a few years during the summers and in my free time and was able to, you know, learn how to run, you know, a basic business, hire people, make sales, you know, for, you know deliver the services to the customers and everything that went with that. So customer service, um, you know, all the important pieces of one day running a business, you know, I learned, I think, on that small scale. And then in 1999, um, I met Sean and Miles, who were, you know, down the road going to be my co-founders of Hire One, but we actually started the Yale Entrepreneurial Society in the summer of 1999 to try to encourage students um, to think about you know, starting businesses. Um, and something that at the time, Yale was really behind some of the other colleges that had business plan competitions and entrepreneurial programs, and Yale did not at the time. So um, the Yale Entrepreneurial Society that we started in 99 was sort of the first um, you know, path for that. And that's really where I met my two co-founders, where six months later, um, in the winter of 2000, we really started um, Hire One, which was a company focused on providing um, basically back office efficiencies to colleges and universities and enabling students to transact more effectively um, with the school and, and um, get their financial aid dollars more quickly. Sure. No, that's great. And then you ran that for, for a long time, like a couple decades, correct? Um, I guess 14 years. So we started that in March of 2000, and I okay. left the company officially in May of um, 2014. So, okay. yeah, a little bit over 14 years. Sure. Um, and we really took it from the three founders um, to being a public company on the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. That, so kind of walk me through that process. Like, how did you grow a company from, you know, three employees to kind of, you know, IPOing? Yeah, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, one step at a time. And I always think about it as, you know, being an entrepreneur is really bringing resources together. That ultimately is the most important thing you can do. And that starts from, you know, the people you bring onto the team. So I think, you know, early on, we brought some really good people onto the team. Um, we raised capital, which is another, you know, resource that, that needs to go into building a company. Um, and then ultimately, you know, we um, built a great product. We got lots of customers to use it. And one thing sort of led to the next, and we continue to raise more capital to grow the business. Um, ultimately, in 2008, um, we raised some private equity capital to buy out some of our early investors who were looking for liquidity. Um, and that allowed us to grow the company even more. And then um, in 2010, um, the time seemed right, and uh, we went public. Interesting. So what made you decide to go public? So, you know, part of um, that decision was certainly with the private equity firm. So, you know, the private equity firm that invested in 2008, in this case, Lightyear Capital, um, they thought that going public was a good way for them to eventually get liquidity. Right. Because the actual IPO process really is, doesn't create liquidity for everybody overnight. Because um, we all know there are lockup periods and there's restrictions on selling. Um, but it sort of does create a path towards liquidity. Um, and so, you know, being public also enables you to get 
um, cheaper access to capital, even though we didn't need capital. Um, it was sort of, um, you, it gives you a currency to do M&A, and we had been somewhat active um, doing acquisitions, and we believe that, that was another platform that would help, you know, being public. Sure. No, no that, that makes some sense. So you, you left in 2014. What, what did you kind of do after that? Um, so my goal was really to take a little bit of time off, which I think is, is really a great thing. Um, if you have an opportunity to take time sure. off, um, particularly after having done 14 years um, building a company and, and being an entrepreneur is sort of a 24-7 commitment. Sure. Yep. Um, even though I did, you know, I did travel and took vacation, you're really never off, you know, offline, especially given technology today, no matter where you are. Um, I was checking email. I was you know, responding to things. And so I really did need a break. And so my goal was to um, take about a year off and I bought a sailboat and went sailing for a year. So from kind of summer of 2014 to the summer of 2015, I kind of sailed around the, the Bahamas and, and Turks and Caicos. And I would always come back in between because I was still on some boards and had some responsibilities that I had to take care of. Um, so um, I would spend a few weeks on the boat and then fly back, um, spend awesome. a few weeks at my home in Florida. Um, but my goal was really to get involved in the startup ecosystem down here in South Florida and see uh, what was going on down here. It was certainly a lot more nascent than, you know, say, developed um, systems like in New York or Boston um, or the Valley. But there was a lot of activity here in Miami and in South Florida. And so that's where I started exploring um, kind of in that 2014, 2015 time frame. Sure. Well, and just like, obviously, you mentioned like you had some other, like you had a bunch of connections down there too, right? So it makes sense. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, the boat ride from kind of Florida to the Bahamas, like three hours or something I heard. Is that true? Yeah, by, by sailboat, it's probably a little bit more. The closest okay. point is about 40 miles. Okay. Um, so, you know, on the, on the sailboat, you know, I was doing uh, six to eight knots. So that can take you all day. Uh, uh, depending okay. on how you do it. Sure. But sure. on a speedboat, you can do it in, in two hours, probably okay. um, from Miami over to, to Bimini. But the Bahamas is a huge sure. um, system of islands. Um, I think almost 400 miles long. So there's wow. a lot, you know, a lot of many, many islands to explore. Um, and it was a really cool experience. Sure. I can imagine that. That must've been great just to kind of, well, obviously when you're out at sea, like you're not connected to the internet at all. Right. At least for parts of it, for sure. Not not when you're, yeah, not when you're between islands, but sure. you know, as you sort of spend time on the sailboat, you find ways to get Wi-Fi and you find different places to to connect. So the more time I spent on the boat, the better I got at you know finding ways to get a little bit of internet and at least stay somewhat connected. Um, but you're certainly not constantly connected as you would be, you know, um, elsewhere. Sure. No, that that's great. Like I always love the when you can just disconnect, even if it's for like a week or or even a couple of days, right? That I think it's healthy, and I, it's sometimes I start to miss it after a couple of days, but I try to do it, you know, maybe a couple times a year for a day or two. <laughs> so I get that. Right. So, so at what point did you decide to kind of start a venture company? Right. So that was really came out of um, our angel investing activity. So Dean, who was one of my partners at Hire One, um, we had been doing angel investing since 2008. 
Um, and so we really liked angel investing. Um, at first, we did it really um, to help out entrepreneurs and um, you know to learn from investing. And then we tried to make that more formal. So we really were looking for you know the best investments, and we did a little bit more due diligence. And so as we sort of um, you know moved our attention to Florida we were thinking about how we can sort of formalize that angel investing and how do we make that um, more impactful for the ecosystem. Um, and what we ultimately discovered was that there is sort of a lot of angel investing going on in South Florida, okay. but there's no sort of organized professional sort of venture capital firm focused on kind of the series A type investments. And so we found, we feel like that's sort of a market niche that currently nobody is filling and we thought we could be more impactful by writing bigger checks. Um, and certainly, it's, you can make it sort of a full-time, um, you know, full-time role by raising a fund. So that's kind of what we, where we came out from, you know, angel, where we started from angel investing to starting the fund. Um, the other driving force was that we met Paul Tanner, who's now one of my partners in the venture fund as well. And he's a wealth manager, and many of his clients were interested in participating in the startup ecosystem, um, but weren't really sure how to make those angel investments in a responsible way that would actually lead to good returns. Sure. Um, so they were looking for you know, help with angel investing. And so we said, well, having a fund is sort of the best way to help you know, folks participate in that startup ecosystem without the work or the worry of you know, having to decide what investments to make and then track them. So it's really interesting, you know, as we sort of um, were studying why people wanted to do angel investing, there's many reasons. Um, and so, you know, many folks want to do angel investing to be involved and help support the ecosystem. And by investing in a fund, I think, you know, that's even more impactful because um, we can really help that ecosystem. We have full-time, you know, full-time associate with four, uh, four partners that are all working to help the companies we invest in. But we also do a lot of other things in the community to create sort of that glue that ultimately builds the ecosystem so that more entrepreneurs can start companies to make it easier for them to raise capital. Certainly, we can't invest in every startup. We, we're looking to only invest in maybe three or four per year. Um, but we want to be there as a resource to help folks find maybe other sources of funding connect them with other folks that might be interested. And we think that's part of the role we play um, as being sort of a South Florida-based venture fund. We're not solely focused on Florida. We also look at deals in other sort of underserved markets or underserved sectors. Um, but being based in South Florida, we certainly want to contribute to the ecosystem down here and, and help build that and see that grow. Sure. No, no, that makes sense. And I, I love the fact that you're like kind of involved in the community because you're, you're the director of uh, the Fort Lauderdale uh, Boca Raton uh, Founder Institute, correct? Right, exactly. And we actually just merged that with um, the South Miami chapter to create the South Florida chapter. So now we actually have a Founder Institute South Florida, which is overarching kind of from Boca all the way down to Miami. And I'm a director of that chapter now with two other guys. So that's another really interesting program that I got involved in and I think is really interesting, particularly for places like South Florida where there aren't as many established sort of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial sort of um, 
paths. It gives people who have an idea, sort of a roadmap and a 14-week program to go from idea to actually starting their business um, and really getting it going, not just talking about starting a business, but actually doing it. And so I think that's why that's a really cool program, and I'm you know, very committed to, to that founder institute. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And then potentially you could get some deals out of it, maybe, maybe not, but it, it doesn't help to be connected, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think everybody in you know that does investing or is sort of involved in the startup e- ecosystem has a vested interest in growing the number of startups and and making it easier for folks to start businesses and to raise capital. And so um, I do think that Founder Institute is part of that. Um, we hope that you know we help. You know, last semester, um, I think 10 folks graduated. The time before, about 10. Wow. So we hope that that means, you know, 10 or 20 new companies every year. Um, and again, that's a small piece of the pie, but it's another piece. And, sure. you know, all the pieces are necessary to build, to build the whole ecosystem. No, no, that's great. So I kind of want to dive a bit deeper into um, what kind of companies do you guys invest in? And is there kind of a rough range that you guys kind of invest, uh, like how much capital do you normally put into a company? I, I get it really depends, but is there kind of a broad range that you guys t- typically look at? Sure. So first talk about stage. So generally we, we look for companies that have revenue, ideally have sort of a million dollars annual run rate of revenue. Okay. Um, so there's flexibility there, but ideally we're looking for, you know, sort of proof of concept being done so that there's real customers and the company's really trying to scale that. Um, so that's kind of from a stage perspective what we're looking at. So it's not a total startup. It's not someone with an idea um, or just a product. We want somebody with a product that's working and customers actually using it and paying for it. Um, so that's kind of from a stage perspective. Um, ideally, um, we look to invest between Call it two hundred fifty thousand and a million in terms of an initial investment. Okay. Um, and then we reserve significant additional capital to support the company after that, because one of the biggest risks for companies is um, follow-on funding risk, and particularly in South Florida, where there's limited options for follow-on funding, we want to make sure we reserve significant funding um, for those companies that are doing well and need additional capital to grow. Um, so that's kind of our goal there but the initial check um we generally will not go below 250,000 and we generally don't want to go over a million so that's kind of the the target range in terms of dollar amount got you okay so um what types of industries do you guys prefer or does it really matter like I'm kind of looking at your website, kind of just, you know, looking up on you guys a bit. You seem to be doing a bunch of stuff in kind of the healthcare space. Sure. So we do sort of focus on specific sectors, even though we will look at um, any type of company. Given our background and experience, um, we generally like B2B companies. So we um, can understand and evaluate companies better whose customers are businesses um, and where there's a direct sale and there's a sort of a sales force. Um, And we think, you know, just given our backgrounds that, we feel very comfortable with those types of businesses and we can assess the pipeline and we'd like to see um, that kind of information. Um, that said, you know, specific sectors that we like, and again, that's given, you know, what we know and where we think we can add value sure. is financial technology, um, education technology, 
um, and then more generally sort of tech-enabled services um, for businesses, um, enterprise SaaS, which is very similar to anything that makes sort of an enterprise more efficient um, using software. And then the last sector is digital healthcare, which we think is just a huge you know, problem for our society as you know, folks live much longer and we need to find ways to provide healthcare in a much more efficient way um, and in a more proactive way. And so one of our first portfolio companies actually uses data to try to predict potential health issues at a very, very early stage um, based on behaviors. Um, and then they can sort of send somebody to check on you know, an elderly patient before it becomes a real issue. Um, so that company is called Care Predict and, you know, it's a great company based right here in Broward County um, in South Florida. So um, they're a great example of that. No, that, so walk me through that a little bit. Like how, is, do they have to wear like a band or, or, or like how do you guys do, or how do they do that? Yeah, so the, the Care Predict client is the assisted living facility. Okay. Um, so they basically sell them a whole system. And it does include a wearable, so each um, resident of the facility will wear um, basically on their um, primary hand or arm, um, they will wear sort of a, a small wearable device, similar to what a Fitbit might look like, sure. um, but it's very different. It collects all kinds of data, but similar, you know, it collects movement, it collects um, humidity, it sort of collects as much ambient data as it can, and it also works with beacons that are installed um, in every room so that oh, it knows what room and what behavior people were doing. And therefore, it can sort of evaluate, you know, are people brushing their teeth? Um, how oh. often do you, do you go to the bathroom? So, for example, if you normally would go twice in a night and now you're going five times, that may be sort of a sign of, you know, a potential uh, health issue that could be, you know, quickly solved if you catch it early versus, you know, if it becomes a full-blown infection, that might require a hospital visit, which is very costly and, and unnecessary. So that's the kind of um, data they're collecting. And they're basically looking for patterns within that data um, or things that could be indications that someone has a health issue. Okay. And then they, like the, like the nurses or the staff on call get kind of a notification saying, you might want to go check on this, this resident? Exactly. So they do, they have a system that essentially, you know, it's web-based and they basically just get an alert and then they can send somebody. Um, they can also, um, with the system, find residents, for example, if, you know, their doctor's waiting for them in the lobby and some of these you know, okay. facilities can be really big. And so sure. there's lots of other features. So it's basically a business-to-business -business solution for that assisted living facility. Um, that's kind of how we think of it. But it solves a real issue um, and for, you know, it solves real problems. And that's no, what we no. liked about that. I got you. Okay. So maybe let's, you, you guys have kind of done a bunch of really interesting kind of investments. So do you maybe want to cover an, a couple other companies that you're, you're, you know, either pretty passionate about or that are doing really well that you guys have invested in, in the last little while? Sure. So in the actual, um, fund, we currently have two companies. So many okay. of the other companies were sort of from pre- Free, uh, let's all let's venture capital. So why don't I tell you about the second company in our portfolio, which sure. you know, I great. think is really exciting. And uh, it's called Lending Front, um, and it's actually based in New York. And they focus on software that makes it sort of easier and less costly 
to provide small businesses with loans. So it's a big problem today that small business lending has become more and more difficult for banks and for other folks to do and do profitably. So LendingFront has created a uh, software solution that essentially you know, helps do everything from the application management to capturing all the, the data, to decisioning the loan, to managing the loan, and then monitoring the loan. And by having that all in one system, it can drive down the cost um, you know, for the lender, which then you know, increases profitability and allows them to make more loans than they would normally be able to. Um, so it's a really interesting company. Um, this one's a little bit earlier. They're still, um, they do have a few beta clients, um, but they're sort of still developing the product and, and um, looking to grow as well. So similar to when we invested in CarePredict, um, they had two um, beta clients running. Now they have sort of 11 that they're working on and LendingFront very similar. They had a few when we invested in, um, you know, in this lending front we invested about uh, nine months ago, um, and now they've grown that as well. So those are generally the profile companies we look for. And then there's sort of the general criteria that, you know, you would hear from any, any investors. We look for experience, you know, management, who have experience in the sector, in the business that they're trying to start. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is about evaluating and judging um, the management team is, can they pull it off? Because ultimately, that's the real question. Um, most financial models show a huge success. Um, I've never, I've <laughs> almost never seen one that shows that it wasn't going to be great, right? So the job of investors to evaluate is, can the management team pull off whatever business plan they're proposing to do? Sure. And that's ultimately, you know, what we focus a lot on is, you know, who is the management and what will it really take to be successful? You know, sure. What do they have to achieve to get there? But I also think that the fact that you and your founders have been through it kind of on the entrepreneurial side really, really helps you guys probably distinguish what's doable or not doable, right? That's got to be a huge right. selling feature for you guys and kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of what could set you guys apart from a lot of other kind of VC firms across North America, at least in my opinion. Right. Absolutely. I think that's a great point you bring up. Um, you know, I think there's sort of two sides to that. I think one, or actually three sides to that. One, I think we can, um, you know, evaluate sort of the feasibility of the business concept, particularly in businesses that are close to what we have experience in. So these kinds of B2B, um, you know, enterprise type businesses. Um, so I think in terms of evaluating, we, I think we have a real advantage with those types of companies. Then I think once we're an investor, we can be more helpful, not only because of what we know in our experience, but also with contact, um, hiring. So we know a lot of folks in the industry, um, you know, we can say, well, this is a great person that we used to work with here or there. And so that is another piece. We don't want to just write a check and, you know, hope that, you know, eventually we make a return. We want to write a check and to be an active part of the board, an active part of helping companies solve the difficult issues as they grow. Sure. Um, and then I think the third part of sort of investing, which I think is sometimes a little bit counterintuitive, is that it's somewhat of a selection issue, that the best companies often have 
a choice of where they can you know get their capital from. Sure. And so by being entrepreneurs, we think we have a leg up on entrepreneurs wanting to work with us. We hope, um, and that will give us access to the best deals or the better deals, um, because that ultimately, you know, even if you were perfect at evaluating which companies were going to be successful and which weren't, having access to the best deals is how the top VCs in the Valley and in other places um, can be so successful and create such great returns from their investors is by having that access. And so we're building that, you know, reputation and through our contacts and through our first few investments, um, because we think that's really, really important is not only to evaluate the companies and then help the companies, but also to be sort of that top choice for those entrepreneurs um, that we want to back. No, I, I think it's like, I think like until you've gone through it, you don't really know what to expect, right? And I think just being able to have people like yourself that have invested in something. So not only do you want, like, just hypothetically, like if you, you invested in a company I'm working on, you have obviously want to give me good advice. You could give me that good advice because you've been through it. And, you know, where somebody like myself might have not been through it, right? And so I think the thing that I find funny sometimes when I've had other kind of venture capitalists either on the show or just talk to them, it's interesting because you can clearly tell the ones that have been through it before and the ones that haven't. And I'm not saying necessarily maybe one's better than the other because sometimes you you want one over the other. But at least for like, especially when you're a tech founder, you want to be working with somebody that's been through it because, you know, like something as simple as like, how do I solve this payroll issue or how do I solve this issue or right? Like if, if you've been through that, then you can recommend something where it might not take me, you know, hours or days or weeks or spend a bunch of capital just kind of trying to figure it out, right? Just you quickly pick up the phone and say like, what do you think of this? And then if you don't know, you just say like, well, you know, I know so-and-so dealt with this, right? So I think right. that's very really valuable. And in, in some cases, it could be just as valuable as the actual capital that you put in, if right. not more in some cases. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly right. And I think as the company gets bigger and bigger and potentially looks at, you know, an exit through M&A or possibly an IPO, those are things that really are pretty unique sort of experiences and skills. And so I think we have that. And sure. so we do hope that many of our companies will have a big successful exit and how to navigate that is really, really difficult. And I wish we had had even better advice. We had great advisors, but it's sort of an area that you can never have sort of enough advice because it's something sure. that most entrepreneurs have never done. And so sure. when you're in the fortunate situation to be there, being able to maximize sort of the returns for investors and for yourself um, is really, really important. And a lot of that comes down to having the right contacts um, at the right firms to allow you to sort of have that best exit at the right time in the right place. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a singular event for the company many times. And so um, it's really, really important. So I think we can give advice, you know, all the way from the beginning of how to start all the way through that life cycle, which I think is pretty unique. No, I, and that was actually, it's funny you mentioned that because can you, I, that was going to be my next question to you. Can you kind of walk me through your guys' process from actually like, okay, like I apply, what's your kind of due diligence process and then let's kind of walk me through how you work with a company once you decide um, what they're going to do. And then how do you decide whether you should sell them off, IPO? Like, 
walk me through that kind of whole process. Sure. So, you know, from the really, you know, beginning, people, you know, send us information all the time on their companies. Okay. And we generally do a first a scan pretty quickly to see, is it a sector that we like? Is okay. it the right stage? So most companies um, get screened out just numerically. They either are pre-revenue okay. or they're in a sector that we just aren't interested in investing in because we have no experience and no way to help folks. Um, and so if the, the you know, information we get, and we get it through the website, but a lot of it's through referrals or people meet me at, you know, I speak um, very regularly, probably once a week at, at an event down here in South Florida. And so I feel I try to be very accessible. And so um, we get a lot of, of those business plans. And so okay. once um, it passes sort of the screen in terms of stage, in terms of industry, um, and somebody on our team would like to sort of take the next step. So it really only requires one of the partners um, or our associate. If someone really likes it, um, they will take that sort of first phone call um, with the entrepreneur, um, usually about 30 minutes, just to learn more and make sure you know, that you know, everything lines up, that it really is interesting. Um, if the company passes that stage, then we'll do an in-person meeting okay. um, with sort of as much of our team internally and the entrepreneur and maybe a few person, uh, people on their team um, to have that sort of initial meeting to tell us about the business, answer a bunch of questions, um, and generally, we'll send questions sort of along the way. And okay. part of our due diligence process, which we think is really interesting and important, is to see how the entrepreneur responds to those questions. How quickly, sure. how detailed, how thoughtful, um, you know, is the entrepreneur sort of listening or is the entrepreneur defensive? You know, sometimes uh, yep. you know, we'll ask questions and, you know, we really just don't know or we're certainly, or sometimes we are skeptical and we ask sort of leading questions because we have a concern, but how people react to that is really, really important because we want to be, you know, helpful and we want to be giving advice and help companies for many years to come and, you know, how entrepreneurs take that advice or take those questions and how thoughtful they are is a really important part of that process along the way. Um, but the formal process sort of an in-person meeting after that, we'll generally focus on three or four areas. We think are sort of the, um, you know, high risk or concern areas for us. Okay. Yeah. Um, if we like the business, we'll sort of focus on three or four things. And then we'll focus our due diligence on those three or four areas. So we'll ask the entrepreneur, you know, as much detail about those things as we can, and then see if we can sort of resolve those concerns. Um, and ultimately, if we sort of get through that process, um, we'll generally start talking about terms. We'll put out an, um, a non-binding term sheet. Um, and if we agree on terms, then we'll do what we call sort of confirmatory due diligence, which is a lot of work because we'll ask lots for us and for the entrepreneurs. We'll ask lots of questions on financials, on legal, um, on lots and lots of things. Um, and ideally, if we don't discover anything new or any surprises, that should get done in a few weeks and then we can you know, proceed with the investment. So that's kind of the process that, that we take. And as you can imagine, there's lots of sort of things along the way because ultimately investing is making assessments on, as we talked about, the team, and that's really an interpersonal thing. There's no black or white. It's really about evaluating, you know, can this person execute on the plan that they've proposed, right? So sure. there's no easy way. There's no numerical way to, to assess that, even though we do have a scoring mechanism internally. 
And that's more to really backtest our assessment later. So 10 years from now, when we'll have all the returns, we can say, you know, what, what criteria of that entrepreneur or of that company should we have, you know, looked at more um, to get more successes or, or, and reduce our failures. But that's sort of more for backtesting. Um, in the end, you know, we really want the whole team to like the business. And as I mentioned, we only do three or four investments a year. That at least that's the plan for the fund. Sure. So, you know, most companies, and we've looked at, we look at about 100 deals a quarter. So that's wow. four or 500 deals a year. That's a lot. So that makes it, you know, less than 1% that we actually invest in. So as you can imagine, we say a lot of no's, um, and we try to do that in a constructive way. So we do try to give very quick feedback. You know, one thing we do different, I think, than some other folks is that we we try not to waste anyone's time, ours or the entrepreneur's time. So we will very quickly um, say, you know, this deal is not for us, and maybe quicker than other folks, um, because if we don't think we can get there, why spend a lot of time to do a meeting and ask for a lot of information um, if we're not going to get there? And so um, we think that's really important and good entrepreneurs appreciate that. Um, Others get frustrated, but again, we'd rather not waste anyone's time and we'll point you in the right direction. And we do try to give constructive feedback to entrepreneurs to say, here's why we currently are not interested. It's either too early or it's not the right sector or we have concerns on these three things, but we try to give constructive feedback um, and we do encourage um, entrepreneurs to stay in touch because for most cases, the company's just too early. Sure. Not enough revenue, not enough customers. Um, and we do want sort of regular updates because that makes the due diligence process much easier for us that if an entrepreneur comes and tells us, here's what I'm going to do in the next six months, and then we see the person execute over six months sure. successfully, that makes it much easier for us to sort of you know, take that next step. Um, six months later. So that's a really important piece. No, I, I think that's great. And I, I think that's really good advice just for, for people looking um, just in kind of getting actual, you know, input from somebody like yourself who's kind of doing this stuff, right? But but I do want to dive a bit deeper into kind of the IPO side of things because you've been through it. Um, so for people that don't know what that really means, maybe do you want to explain that quick? Because I think some people like understand it at maybe like such a basic level that they don't really understand what that means. Right. So, you know, going public is an interesting process, but it's really not selling your company. It's really just a process to list your shares on a national exchange. Okay. Um, and for practical purposes, for most startups, it's going to be NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, are kind of the two options in the U.S. that most people are looking to go public on. Okay. Um, and it does sort of create a different regulatory framework for you because being public, you, can, you will have retail investors, and therefore there's a level of disclosure required for the public in terms of financials, um, quarterly reports, and those are all regulated by the SEC, and so by being a public company, you become subject to a bunch of public reporting requirements. But the process of going public is really, there's sort of a lot of technical sort of legal paperwork and technical listing requirements. But from a practical standpoint, you're really looking to create your um, sort of early shareholders, your public shareholders. And so generally companies might sell 10% or 20% of their shares 
um, either new shares that the company issues or existing shares from, from existing shareholders that they want to sell you know, into this public offering. And the process with an investment bank is essentially to do a roadshow. So after months and months of sort of preparing paperwork and preparing um, presentations and then ultimately getting SEC approval, you do need SEC approval to go out and market a public offering. And the SEC really doesn't do a business evaluation in terms of if this is a good or bad investment. They're really just looking that all the legal requirements have been met, all the disclosure requirements have been met, and that everything has been disclosed in the document, um, which is called an S-1 document. And ultimately, the roadshow um, is sort of a one- to two-week process where management um, with investment bankers will go meet with large institutional investors um, like Fidelity and Wellington, and there's a bunch of, you know, there's hundreds of institutional investors sure. um, to convince them to buy an amount, sort of some portion of that, of those shares that the company's selling into the public markets. Um, and that builds your initial sort of um, investor roster and creates sort of float on the market because you need to have early investors that essentially will be um, selling shares into the market when people want to buy them. And that creates sort of that initial float um, into that public market. Got you. Okay. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So, is there, like, and it's probably different for every company. But do you need to be at a certain size? Do you have to have a certain revenue? Like, what is kind of the basic guidelines before you can even start thinking to go public? Um, that's a very difficult question. There are certain legal requirements. Okay. Um, you know, on the exchanges. So, you know, stock exchange has requirements. Sure. Um, but generally, um, you know, companies will want to be significantly bigger than those requirements. So it's really driven by, you know, does the company need access to, you know, public capital? Um, is there sort of a liquidity need? Does somebody want to be able to sell their shares to other people freely? So by being public, that makes it easier for people to trade shares. It also enables employees to sort of cash in their stock options if they've got stock options. So there's lots of reasons to want to go public. Um, but that said, there's a lot of cost of being public. So um, there's administrative burden in terms of quarterly filings. There's sort of the business burden of public disclosure, which means your customers, your competitors, lots of people will be looking at information, not for investment purposes, but for other reasons. Sure, sure. Um, and so that is a big cost to the business. Um, so there's lots of different ways to think about it. Um, and then there's hard costs in terms of compliance costs to file all the papers, to do the proper internal um, procedures required to be public. Um, there's insurance that can cost hundreds and thousands of dollars. So um, the estimated cost of being a public company is, is for most companies, like at my company, it was at least a million dollars a year, if not wow. more. Wow. Um, and just sort of administrative and hard costs. Uh, those are people costs, insurance costs, sure. filing costs, you know, all of the, and legal costs. So sure. there's significant costs to go with that, and that has to be weighed with the benefits. Um, so I think most companies will wait as long as they can before going public. Okay. Um, and as you know, there's huge companies today um, that are talked about going public um, and still have not and are worth you know, tens sure. and tens of billions. Um, sure. And the reason they don't want to disclose the information to their competitors. I um, mean, that's one big reason people don't want to go public. Got you. So was, what were the main reasons you guys decided to go public? 
Um, it was really from a liquidity standpoint. So we had been in business, you know, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. We had early shareholders who were able to sell a little bit of their shares um, to the private equity firm in 2008. Um, but then in 2010, um, we saw an opportunity to create more liquidity for early shareholders um, and for Lightyear Capital, who had invested in 2008. Right. So that's one of the things by raising money, um, you know, investors want to create liquidity. And to your question earlier on, you know, investors generally can't really drive the timing or the type of exit, but can certainly sort of have a desire and encourage entrepreneurs to seek an exit at the right time. And most funds have sort of a, you know, three to five year horizon to want, you know, to get, you know, (laughs) get an exit out of an investment. Um, And it depends a little bit on when the fund invested. So, most funds have a five-year investment period and then sort of a five-year period to sort of manage those investments and get the funds back. So if an investment was done very early in a fund life, it might be fine for it to take seven or eight or nine years because it sort of you know, overlaps with the other investments. And that's sort of um, what drives some of the timing um, you know, for companies to do sort of either an M&A process and sell the company or to do an IPO, which you know, also creates you know, some liquidity for, for shareholders. Sure. No, that, that's great. Um, so we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So maybe let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and the company. And you're also doing a talk at the startup expo, correct? You maybe want to mention what you're talking about there or going to be talking about there. Sure. Absolutely. So at, uh, SupX, I'll be, uh, uh, running a fin- financial technology panel, and okay. uh, I think we'll be announcing the the speakers shortly. Sure. But we're putting together a great panel talking about you know fintech, which is a hot area, and it's changing. So there's a lot of new things and new areas um, being touched on there. So that's definitely one panel I'll be doing, and I may uh, do one or two other things as well there. So, um, but I'm always very active and and at different events, um, and then more information on Lasolas. Venture capital is best to just find on our website, which is lasolasvc.com. And uh, that's the best place to read about, you know, what we do, our portfolio. And that's also a contact link where entrepreneurs can submit, you know, their information and get in contact. And we do respond to, you know, all messages. So we encourage folks to just, you know, send us, you know, a message through the website. And then uh, one of the partners, or Nate, who's our associate, will get right back to them. Perfect. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Great. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the show. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good good one. Thank you. Okay, bye. Yep, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show was done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep them in the future.